Friends, I'm back from the fatherland. We had an extraordinary time in Germany, back to Bad Bernack, where we spent nine months as a family back in 2016. As a business experiment, really, after I read the four-hour work week from Tim Ferriss, chasing time, money, and mobility, and the experiment to see if I could be location independent, uh, saw us move our whole family to Germany. And uh, it had been Catherine's dream for, for some time to take the kids back and, and allow them to relive a really special part of their childhood. So, yeah, we've, we've spent three weeks in Germany. We got to see Budapest and Prague as well and um, a really lovely experience. Uh, and and lots, of, lots of awareness, lots of discoveries, lots of learning. And I think travel does that. Travel takes you out of your normal environment and opens your eyes to the world. So if you're uh, if you're ready and available, I think it's a, a place of, of great growth and discovery. So a few things to share from my experience. Um, firstly, the the thing that hit me very early on in the trip was that uh, you know we were taking our kids back to relive something that they'd loved and we'd loved with them seven years ago. Um, but when when we got there. And, uh, you know, a big part of Catherine's in- intention too was to recreate a bunch of special photos that we'd taken from that time and to go back to the same spot, see if we could wear similar clothes, have the same expressions. Uh, our, our famous uh, family photo of, uh, of the kids smoking and drinking to resemble, you know, how, how easy it was to buy alcohol and how cheap the cigarettes were and how many people smoked. And so we recreated that photo. Um, and lit up cigarettes. Elliot certainly did not condone that. Thought we were the worst parents in the world for even suggesting that he light up. But nevertheless, Catherine forged on with her plan, and we got the photo. Uh, but I, I watched, I watched the kids relive the experiences, and I watched our intention to have them relive that. And and one thing that struck me straight away was they're not the same people. They they're not even close. They are completely different human beings. And. Uh, it reminded me of something that I'd seen on Young Sheldon. If you've ever watched uh, Young Sheldon and you're patient enough to watch the credits, well, Chuck Law, who's written and produced Young Sheldon, uh, shares his thoughts, his writing at the end. He, he's got a, a five-second screen grab of some of his writing behind uh, every episode. So... There's, there's a lot of content there and, and easy to miss. And so sometimes I, I won't see anything. Sometimes I'll press watch the credits and just see what he's written. I don't even know how I saw it the first time. Um, but often it's profound. Often it is magic. That guy is a genius. And he's written something that most people will never see. Uh, and I, I love that in terms of how wisdom is often discovered. That it's there it's it's freely available but you got to go looking for it and you got to be ready to find it so uh, Chuck Law Productions number 689 is the heading for this one I, I saw on one of the episodes of Young Sheldon and, and he says this you only live once a common trope but is it true I've been a baby a toddler a child an adolescent a young man a middle-aged man and now a 5 8 age man Digging a little deeper, I have been a son, a student, a scrappy shortstop, a bar mitzvah boy, a stoner, a patient, a failed musician, a failed songwriter, a failed Dianetic clear, 
don't know what that is. A dad, a failed husband, a relentless door-to-door salesman, a failed husband again, a drunk, a professional wise guy, a teetotaler, and miraculously a success. Which one was me? Which incarnation was my life, was my one life? I believe if these me's were to meet, in parentheses, brackets, idea for a play, there would be likely no recognition. At best, they'd view each other as strangers, at worst, as idiots. (laughs) So maybe the real question isn't whether we live only once. Maybe we should be wondering how many times we die and become something new, something else. So uh, in the work that I do, you know, no surprise that I get to dive into story and the structure people have built for themselves to live out of. And, uh, you know, my entire work is around deconstructing that story with the intention of creating, you know, awareness and more choice. And that if you are the storyteller and you wrote the first story, well, you could probably, in fact, definitely write better stories because the first stories were written an awful long time ago with not a lot of awareness or emotional intelligence or skill and often from a place of fear or distress or embarrassment or shame. So uh, it's no tragedy that we write limiting stories for ourselves and my kids. The real tragedy is that most people never change their stories and just continue to perpetuate a narrative that they don't enjoy, they feel a prisoner to, it, it feels difficult to be them. Uh, and so watching my kids in exactly the same place, wearing exactly the same clothes, recreating exactly the same scenes, and yet seeing in no way, shape or form are they anything like the people they were seven years ago was a really profound insight into this idea that we are not one person. We do not have one life. That's ridiculous. It doesn't even make sense. And that reflect on Chuck's writing around that, that if all of those characters were to meet, they would relate to each other as strangers at best and idiots at, at worst. It's hilarious to consider that. And so reflecting on my own journey and my own life, considering the fact that I actually have anyone, I, I, have, I have the ability to be anyone I give myself permission to be. And so do each of us. If we are the storyteller, and we have the pen, then we can update our story and it seems that that is a very common thread through success when you look at people who live well they just tell better stories than those who don't and also they don't get attached to any one story they don't peak at high school and then live their life in the shadow of their former self they don't find one story that works and then everything else is is a mere shadow or pales into insignificance they keep updating they keep reinventing they keep changing they keep becoming different people so a profound experience of watching that in real life and being reminded of what i knew to be true and you know useful to share that with you to consider that in your own experience where are the stories in your life coming to an end and and are you prepared to write the next story and the next story and the next story are you willing to let one version of yourself die and let the next one be born are you are you willing to reinvent yourself to let go of what's been and embrace what's to come because that when you, when you can consider that that is happening, whether you want it to or not, then to do it on purpose means you're likely to have a better experience of it than feeling powerless and that life is just happening to you. 
Second profound experience happened on the, on the very first night that we were in Germany. Um, the, the challenge of traveling all around, around the world and not sleeping and eating strange food and feeling out of your body. Um, you know, I dropped into a deep, deep sleep first night and had had a dream that was one of the most vivid dreams I've had in a long time and remembered every part of it when I woke up. But the, the dream was around the rules of the game and the message of the dream delivered by someone's voice or something's voice was, hey, Jamin, uh, you understand the rules of the game now. You know how this game works and that is an extreme advantage to you to live your not life now. You have thought about life long and hard, considered the rules, considered that it is a game, and you have understood the game. So now go play the game wholeheartedly. Go play the game to win. So um, the experience of waking up in the morning going, wow, that that is actually true. I, I know the rules of the game. That doesn't make me better than anyone. It doesn't increase my superiority. It, it, but it does give me an advantage and an unfair advantage. Because just like in any game, if you do not know the rules and you want to have a good experience of the game, it is very, very difficult. Uh, If one person knows the rules and the other person doesn't, it's a frustrating experience. The only way to have a great experience of any game is to not only know the rules, but to understand them and to be well practiced in them so that you can utilize those rules for your advantage. So um, I got to write about this and I've, I've written various forms of the rules over the last year or so Uh, but when I woke up from that dream it was just so crystallized in my mind and then when we got to Budapest I um, you know I I love the experience of work play and to me uh, combining my life together into one complete unit was perhaps the most significant development in my entire life that happened off the back of my sabbatical year back in I don't know 2013 maybe where I took 12 months off from the business, uh, handed it over to my business partner to run run things and stopped all operations uh, and found that stopping everything was more stressful than going full noise. And in that pain of thinking I'd solved the problem, only realizing I'd made it worse, was this extraordinary discovery that, okay, then what do I want? If I could have anything, what anything would I want? If I got to design my ideal life, then what would that look like? And in that moment, I realized uh, I wouldn't be working 24-7 and nor would I be resting 24-7. I would combine work and play in every day. I I love what I do. I just don't want to do it all the time. So I would very much enjoy pockets of high intensity and high energy and focus and also pockets of rest and relaxation and fun and joy. And so I designed my ideal setup and it, it... it came to 24 hours a week, 24 hours work across seven days. I didn't like the idea of compartmentalizing work and rest. I thought I'd love to combine them all. So rather than I can only work in these times and then I must rest for these days, I thought I'm not even going to take a day off. I'm going to work seven days, but all of my life belongs. So uh, I didn't have a business model for how in the world I was going to finance that, but I knew that I knew that I knew that I'd discovered something that was really life-giving and and would work for me. And I think all my best life developments along the lines of 
you know, most people who've had similar experiences and most people who feel proud about the, the things that have grown them have been off the same idea that you say yes and work out how later. You don't work at how first, how's impossible, how's the slowest way to solve any problem. So begin with the end in mind, work your way back. And so off the back of that discovery, 24 hours a week, uh, spread across seven days, now go work out how, Jamin, because you're ruined for anything less. Uh, so that was a big part of going to Germany as well to, to really work out because I felt like I got time back. That was a big part of the Germany experiment off the back of this discovery in my sabbatical year because I got time back, but I didn't get mobility or money. And so moving to Germany was to go, okay, I've got this lifestyle. Now, could I take this lifestyle anywhere? And could I also make money only working 24 hours a week from anywhere in the world? Only one way to find out Let's get on a plane with my family, with one person signed up to my first online boot camp, selling for $9.95 but offering it at half price at $4.95 and see if that's going to work. So sink or swim, right? Now, why am I telling you this? That's right, work, play, combining everything together. And so uh, I was on holiday and yet I took my laptop with me and knew that I would do writing. And I, I love the idea of getting up early before everyone else, their family's still asleep. I go go for a run, and go find a nice cafe, get a coffee, headphones in, laptop open, and just write for the joy of it, write because I can, not because I have to. And I find those moments, some of my most creative, some of my most joyful, um, deep flow happens in, in that space really frequently. So in Budapest, uh, you know, processing this dream i know the rules of the game i know the rules of the game and it's been confirmed to me externally somehow by some voice that that's true yeah jamin you're not making this up you're not delusional you do understand the rules of the game congratulations so now write about it now uh, help other people understand the rules of the game too so um i consolidated the rules into five five rules and i, I think it it may prove to be some of if not my most important writing ever and you know that's it's probably not useful for me just to read the five rules as simply as i wrote them to you here because um yeah wisdom given before you're ready for it turns out not to be wisdom at all and it can also hurt you because then you write it off yeah i already heard that because i think each of the rules that they are very hard to grasp and very easy to miss very easy to dismiss they don't make sense straight off the bat they require you to lean in and wrestle they're true and trustworthy and brilliant and beautiful um, but you got to be ready for them so the the you know the fun of getting to write about that is to build a story to take you on a journey to create a readiness experience and then and then in an open place, then explain the rules. So I think that's my best way of being useful to people to help others understand the rules is by writing about them, not not by talking about them. So so that's what I'll do. So I'll, I'll not share that writing. Uh, but some writing that I would like to share with you was, was just thinking more about goodness. Um, I've shared before that the music that plays inside me is a music around how to be a good human being. And that our job is, is to work out how to be good humans and then to include our humanity and then transcend it into a spiritual experience of life because life is spiritual. 
But if you're trying to escape your humanity into a spirituality, then your spirituality is very abstract. It's impractical. It's problematic. And it does not help anyone or anything. Your job is to be a human first. And there is certain qualities that I think are very quantifiable and, and you can build around goodness you you might say to someone like that you know that guy's a good bloke well by whose standard how do you know what do you mean when you say good so again i've thought long and hard around what goodness is and um, my best take on goodness is that it's the combination of security objectivity pragmatism ambition and kindness and that those five qualities together are, are what makes someone good but the, the point of what I wanted to share in my writing with you today is just the idea that goodness is a function of choice. That statement dropped into my awareness as I was writing about this because I'm, you know, just to take, a, take you back a moment into why I'm writing around goodness because in this book around upgrading from self-discipline to self-permission, um, the very first thing you will have to resolve within yourself is trust. If you want permission granted, to succeed and to play in life well you will have to trust yourself if you do not trust yourself then then you can only use self-discipline self-discipline is management energy it's using your best energy against yourself to protect yourself from yourself so that you don't ruin things so that's a very different operation than permission permission is you know you you have uh full confidence in your natural ability to succeed without management so that will require a deep level of trust. So then the question must be asked, well, can you be trusted? Are you trustworthy? And every single human has got dirt on their hands, has got um, part of their past that would, would scream at them very loudly and say, no, you actually can't be trusted because of this, this and this. Do you remember what happened here when you let yourself go do you remember here when you were unmanaged do you remember that decision that you made or that thing that you said or that mistake that you made do you remember that do you remember the pain that caused for you and others so you do need to be careful about who you are and uh, and to be honest um, if you were to be very very honest around your your nature i think actually your core nature is bad and um, so be careful of who you really are and be careful of what you're capable of don't rest so really examining the structure of that ideology around human nature are we good or are we bad Um, and you know my best thinking up until recently has been i don't think we're inherently bad in fact i'm really sure we're inherently good and so the aim is to understand who you really are and see that goodness as an inherent part of every human being and relax into that Um, but being really scientific about it i don't think that's true anymore i don't actually think we're inherently good and i definitely don't think we're inherently bad i just think we're real and i think that's actually better than both um so so goodness is actually a function of choice so no one's trying to ruin their life and no one is actually trying to ruin anyone else's life as their primary motivation we are each seeking peace and comfort We are trying to move away from pain toward pleasure. They are deep biological and psychological motivators deep in our psyche. And so where a person behaves very incongruently with their values and does destroy themselves and others, uh, it looks like the reason they're doing that is because they are bad. Uh, I would say the reason they're doing that is they are in a very small place. 
and their choice, their real world choice is very limited. And so uh, what they do in order to move to peace and comfort and away from pain toward pleasure is, is objectively destructive. So I, I think that when you experience more choice, you make better choices. And security, objectivity, pragmatism, ambition and kindness dramatically increase the amount of choice, real world choice you have. Uh, and security is, is the biggest one, you know, surprises there because if your best energy is being directed to prove and defend yourself, if your primary motivation, conscious and unconscious, is to cover and compensate the worst thing you think is true about you, well, that is a small place to live from. And the, the amount of real world choices you have are, are severely limited and totally compromised. You might want to behave in loving, kind, generous, pragmatic ways, but you cannot afford to behave in any other way than to protect yourself from being found out. That supersedes all else. And so you will find yourself behaving in, in ways that can only be described as madness. That is the tragedy of unresolved and hidden insecurity. It leads to madness in every single case. It ruins your life. It ruins the life of those around you. So it is your responsibility to resolve your hidden and unresolved insecurity and move to a place of security because when you do it increases choice and when you have more choice you make better choices it's as simple as that um, I, i'm i love the work of carl jung i've so enjoyed diving back into his deep thinking his best work around human nature and i just adore his thinking on this subject around human nature and and goodness and and love how honestly he talks about bad behavior and that it belongs and that in order to be a good human being, you must know what you are capable of. If you are afraid of your nature, then you will not produce goodness. Fear makes your world smaller and limits your choices. And, and if you fear your nature, your nature will control you. It will consume you. It will come out in dysfunctional ways. His work on the shadow is, you know, the shadow represents all the parts of you you don't understand. I've, I've said this before, but just to reiterate it in the context of this conversation, the parts of you you are not sure of, the parts that are unreconciled, the experiences that you can't make sense of, put them in the shadow and don't think about them, hoping they'll just go away. But they won't. They will not go away. You cannot compartmentalize your life successfully. Those parts of you will come out. And if you don't understand them, they'll come out in dysfunctional ways, ways that destroy you. So your work is to actually understand who you are and what you are capable of and to realize you are, if you are real and you have choice, then you you are capable of anything and everything. You You can hurt yourself and you can hurt others. To say you can't or you won't is ridiculous and does not lead to trust, it leads to fear. Jung says, don't dismiss the virtue of sinning. It's in bad behavior that we work at how to be good. It's in hating others that we work at how to love. It's in tearing down that we work at how to build up. It all belongs when you know who you are and what you're capable of, and then move to a place of more choice. You watch yourself make better choices, even though you are just as capable of making poor choices, but you don't. Why would you? What would it serve you and others to make poor choices? That's when you trust yourself. That and only then and only then is when you trust yourself, when you understand you are capable of everything, but you don't want to do everything. 
so it all starts with security. This is the insecurity project, right? That is my main message in the world, that insecurity is a solvable problem. Uh, and I love, I love the pressure testing of security. I, I love pressure testing of all growth because it, it shows what's real. And uh, if you've read Elegantly Simple Solutions to Complex People Problems, I talk about the hope, power, humor model. Uh, and and humour is my favourite word in that model, and it's the easiest word to misunderstand, because uh, it's in the the line of problem around uh, you know three problems are hopelessness, helplessness, and hurtfulness. So humour's in the the fruit around solved hurtfulness, and the mistaking thinking is you you resolve hurtfulness by finding the lightness, by finding humour, by laughing things off, by wearing a smile, by always being positive. And that is not humour at all. That's a disaster. That's a band-aid. That, that is to lie to yourself and others. Um, that, that's a place of great suffering. The humour I'm talking about is uh, you know you are free from hurtfulness when you've resolved the neediness because it's only the people you need something from that have the power to hurt you and that you've replaced it with ownership and so you're taking care of your needs now and so you don't need anything from others so when they behave poorly and you don't need anything from them you're able to see them for who they are and see their behavior for what it is and then it's actually funny because that bad behavior used to destroy you it used to tear you down it, it used to rob you of life it had such power to get inside you and undermine every part of your confidence. Now you're watching yourself in that same situation. The bad behavior is continuing and it's not touching you. Wow, isn't that funny? That's funny. It, and the humor proves that you are free. You're not free if you've just escaped. If you've just run away from the problem or the situation or the person, you know you are genuinely free when you're in the situation and nothing is touching you. So you know you are secure when you're in the midst of situations that potentially triggered you or always have triggered you and they're not touching you. So uh, I, I read a, a quote, it, it popped up very briefly on one of the socials and I thought that's fascinating and then it got stuck in my mind and I had to go back and look for it and I really, I really don't like uh, quoting quoting profound wisdom without understanding the source and I've done as much digging as I can to find out the first person who said this and every every time I've seen it quoted it's referenced someone else has referenced so I don't know who said this first and I'm sorry whoever it was uh, if you're listening tell me tell me it was you I'd love to reference you. But here's the quote. Uh, if you have the power to eat alone in a restaurant or sit alone in a cinema hall, then you can do anything in your life. If you have the power to eat alone in a restaurant or sit alone in a cinema hall, then you can do anything in your life. Uh, I went on to Quora and just saw the discussion around this quote. Uh, it's a great place for some really intelligent discussion. And... Uh, someone had had answered the question someone said well you know what's the logic to this how does this make sense and and he said look the logic is simple we humans feel most comfortable in doing what most of us are doing and we feel most uncomfortable in doing what nobody is doing one can call it following the herd mentality 
Since in restaurants or cinemas, generally one goes with a partner or a friend or family member, it needs good courage and very strong purpose for one to go alone. Many who wish to go alone would have the second thought right in front of their mind that what will other people say? Like has everyone deserted him in this vast world that he is alone here? Such a poor and lonely fellow. Mind reading or fortune telling type thinking will stop the person doing what he wishes to do and make him remain stagnant there and drop the the idea to go alone. So yes, it needs ample courage to do what most people don't do and go to places alone needs great courage i would say it also needs great security in fact that's the only thing it really needs for you to desire your own company and to enjoy yourself and to have the resources that you need internally and the pressure test of doing something so counterintuitive like eating alone or going to the movies alone is a great pressure test but i'll tell you another pressure test that i discovered in germany and it relates to the title of this episode and Uh, When we were in Budapest, there were thermal spas, natural springs of hot water coming up from the earth. And and the the Hungarians had built these beautiful baths, uh, capitalizing on this warm water of all different temperatures, very rich in minerals, good for your skin. And uh, and now it's a really popular tourist attraction. And so I thoroughly enjoyed the spas and saunas there. And then when we were back in Germany, uh, Elliot's a big fan of, of jumping off heights. So a lot of the pools in Germany have diving boards of various heights. So we enjoyed that. But I noticed at the end of this indoor pool was a sauna area. And I thought, goodness, I'm, I'm now into saunas. Saunas are now my favorite thing. So I went down there and noticed the door was locked. Um, then remembered I'd had a key given to me for my locker in this pool, thought that must open the door, went down there to open it and a lady walked just in front of me and she opened the door with her key and I just assumed, great, well then if her key opens, mine would as well. So I just followed her in and got inside and realised no one had any clothes on uh, and and uh, kind of uh, you know stammered around and wondered what I was, where I was and what I was doing and then uh, one of the elderly gentlemen there swanning around in his birthday suit uh, was quite upset that I still had my budgie smugglers on. <laughs> Incidentally, uh, budgie smugglers have not caught on in Germany. Just FYI, if you're, if you're uh, a budgie smuggler wearer in Australia, um, yeah, I, I, there were kids pointing and laughing at everywhere I went. So Germans are fine with nudity and board shorts, uh, not speedos. So anyway, I was wearing pink speedos and uh, that wasn't the problem. The problem though was that I had clothes on. And then the lady who'd gone in front of me noticed my dilemma and came and noticed I didn't speak very well in, in German and explained to me in English what had happened and said that I'd somehow found my way into the exclusive day spa area and it was a clothes-free domain. Um, but since I was already in here, she did have a spare towel and, and she and all the others encouraged me to stay. So before I knew it, I was being ushered into the sauna and being derobed and I uh, spent the next 30 minutes in a... Uh, in 80 degree temperature with eight other mid to senior German citizens with our kid off. And uh, <laughs> it was a life-changing experience because uh, I've not experienced that before. And typically uh, nudity is, well, it's just strange. And it's very peculiar to even consider how that would be. And yet I found myself uh, enjoying conversation in the nude and not being self-conscious at all there was one elderly gentleman sat in the corner spread eagle 
with his Johnson laying on the wood in front of him and his balls hanging down on the step below, just at ease, talking to me, looking me in the eyes. And uh, his Johnson was looking at me in the eyes too, which is a little off-putting. But nevertheless, I had to come to terms with it. And I was taken back to uh, when I learnt six core needs, when I first discovered that model from Anthony Robbins. Thank you again, Anthony, your finest work. If you're listening, I appreciate you. Uh, One of my most impactful mantras around applying internal significance. So cutting the cord to the external means of proving I matter and realizing it's my job to know that I matter. my, My mantra was to stand in front of the mirror nude and say, hey, Jamin, to look into my own eyes, hey, Jamin, I deeply love and accept you. Hey, Jamin, I deeply love and accept you. And to rotate each through that sentence and emphasize different words each time, looking to my eyes and in the nude. That was incredibly confronting. Like, firstly, the mirror, we, we, we typically use mirrors to find what's wrong, not what's right. So we're finding flaws and making sure we look acceptable enough to head out the door. But to actually look at myself in my own eyes and and just look and to see me, um, that was confronting in itself, let alone being in the nude. Because, you know, if you've been in the, like looking at yourself in the nude is a strange experience because uh, we're weird creatures and we have strange bits and strange shapes and sizes and we don't look like the perfect human they're very few perfect looking humans most of us look very average or below average and have strange bits and (laughs) things in strange proportions and so to kind of come to terms with that and go this is me this is this is the body that i inhabit if i can't come to terms with me how in the world is anyone else supposed to that is my job to see me and to be okay with me and so the pressure test of being secure in my own skin and noticing that I wasn't early on, noticing that I was far from secure. I didn't like me to, to work through that and to deeply love and accept me until I felt that and I agreed with that. So I was taken back there to have an experience of a community nudity for the first time and go, my goodness, uh, there's nothing erotic about this experience. I was surprised by that. I assumed that would it would have to be a very erotic experience. It wasn't. It was very matter of fact, very plain, very ordinary. And to just relax in that uh, and to watch myself relax in that. And the value of pressure testing when you watch pressure being poured on and the system still works, it's a great bit of feedback to go, hmm, lovely. You are secure. And security is a function of goodness security increases your ability to make great choices so good for you so look uh, that's all i wanted to share with you today i hope you found that useful uh, now my coach training that i've been banging on about and talking over promising and under delivering for at least the last six to nine months uh, my video guy has spent the last three weeks working on it while I've been overseas, and I assume he's ready to go. He probably won't be, but look, let's let's overpromise and underdeliver again. Look, it, it will be the best thing I've ever produced, I reckon. To be honest, I think these eighteen models are the toolkit I've used over the last twelve years to create transformation. They've been so well refined, uh, so well practiced, and to uh, deliver them in the room full of 
people drawing out the magic in me. It, it was a really lovely experience and so glad I got to capture it on video and editing parts of it myself, seeing the quality of that. It, it will be wonderful. So if you in any way are looking to be upskilled in your ability to hold a clean space for someone else, to facilitate change through quality conversations, through brilliant tools, then I'm sure you'll find it useful. And you can be anywhere in the world too, which is great. You don't have to come to Gold and do that training anymore. So I appreciate your patience. There are a few people who are, uh, you know, keep messaging me, when is this ready, Jamin? Come on, is it ready yet? So it's not ready yet. It'll be, I'm sure it'll be ready soon. I really am sure. Uh, and finally, I, from time to time, I do coaching demonstrations on the podcast and they're always very sacred conversations and it's a big risk for someone to allow a very personal coaching session to be aired publicly. Um, But that's the quid pro quo. You get a free session. If you're willing to share that publicly, well, then you can have that conversation for free because it's valuable to me uh, to get to share the the wonder of coaching and it's valuable to the listeners because you can't cannot help but try it on so look if that's you if you're if you'd love to taste the power of coaching um, and have not done that before uh, reach out send an email to Catherine or myself and uh, yeah, in the coming weeks I'm going to record some coaching sessions as future podcast episodes so we'll leave it there for today and I'll talk to you again soon